Today we obviously are going to be spending a little time talking about the persecuted church and um, I want to begin with just some statistics. I know that maybe some of you and a lot of us in America we like our statistics and so I've tried to, to, one of the first things that I wanted to set out to do today was to try to help us get a grasp of the reality of the persecuted church. Because I think if you're like me, sometimes when I hear the persecuted church and I think about persecution that happens in the world, I'm just not really sure um, how that plays out. And so um, I, I found some things, it's hard to get statistics um, on the persecuted church because of the nature of persecution around the world. A lot of times it's held in wraps, it's, it's done kind of uh, low-key. A lot of times the governments that are in control of this information won't let it out. But I did find some interesting information that I think uh, will maybe help us understand what is happening around the world. So the first one is, according to the World Evangel- Evangelical Alliance, over two mil- 200 million Christians in at least 60 countries are denied fundamental human rights solely because of their faith. 200 million Christians in 60 countries. These other guys did a report, and the best that they could tell, they estimated that approximately from from mid-2008 to mid-2009, 176,000 Christians will have been martyred. That's about one and a half times all of Abilene. According to these same authors, um, that compares to 160,000 martyrs in mid-2000. Uh, mid and they say if the current trends continue, that by 2025, an average of 210,000 Christians will be martyred annually. Let that sink in. I know there are a lot of people on this planet. But 210,000 people a year or 176,000 people a year are being died simply because they profess Christ as their Savior. I found some other stories. Maybe this will help you. I'm just going to read them. I know it's... um, uh, there's just four stories I just want to read quickly, and these all happened within the last month or so. On October 31st, you may have heard this one was actually in the news. Islamic, Islamic extremists attack worshippers at a church in Baghdad, killing 59 Christians. Christians in Iran are reporting that a pastor there has been sentenced to death because of what they're calling a thought crime. Basically what happened is he stood up to... Uh, the school system teaching his son the Quran. He didn't want to deal with that. And they say that uh, the Iranian government has threatened his wife, has threatened to take away their children. The pastor was arrested in October 2009. Eighty-three Christians are known to have been arrested in Iran since the beginning of 2010. And of those, 65 have been released, but 18 are still in custody. On September 21st, nearly 200 police officers demolished a prayer room at a church in a Chinese province citing a building code violation. And on September 5th, Hindus extremists in Andhra Pradesh in India, that might sound familiar to you, that's the place where we helped build a church. In that same place, 
these Islamic, uh, Hindu extremists destroyed a church. The following day, the extremists filed charges against two pastors and three members of the church, alleging that the Christians had destroyed local temples and Hindu idols, and police arrested all five believers the same day. Stories like this are happening all over the world, almost daily. And if you're like me, I hear these stories and I'm like, what am I supposed to do with that? I mean, I'm, I'm thousands and thousands of miles away. What am I, am I just supposed to shed a tear? I have all of these questions that well up inside me of, why would persecution even happen? Why would people want to kill Christians that aren't, are not hurting anyone? There are people in this room who have come from other countries who can tell you about the reality of persecution and suffering for your faith around the world. You've got a little bookmark in, in your bulletin. Hebrews 13.3 says that we need to remember those who are suffering. And I definitely think one of the things we can do is pray. One of the things that we can do is remember the people the plight of the persecuted church around the world. But I think one of the things that we can do is better understand a biblical perspective of persecution and suffering that moves us to a place of standing firm in our own lives. I don't know about you, but again, I have lots of questions that come up with me in my mind, and I want to try this morning to answer a few of those questions for us. And there is no way in 30 minutes or so could I ever think that I could expound on suffering and persecution from a biblical perspective, but I want to kind of hit it and kind of give us an overview, kind of maybe answer some of the, some of the lingering questions, at least that are in my soul, maybe they're in yours, and help us understand biblically persecution and suffering. The first question for me is why? Why is there persecution and suffering in this world? Why do people have to live like this? And the best response I can figure out in, in the Scripture is, in Genesis 1, everything is good. God creates the world, He creates man, and He says, everything is good. And then you flip a couple of pages, and in Genesis 3, we see the fall, and we see the enemy turn the world upside down. And the reason there is sin and suffering and persecution in the world is because we live in a fallen world. There is an enemy who is very real. The Bible says, in a sense, there are two masters. That all of us who claim faith in Christ struggle with this, this reality that exists of these two masters, that there is a God who wants control of our lives and there is an enemy who will do anything to keep us from living in faith in Christ. The source of suffering and persecution in our world is an enemy who is very real. And he has been wreaking havoc 
on this earth from almost the very beginning. And I think what we need to understand this morning is that our enemy is real. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 says, Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. The stories like Salavat and the stories that you hear about the persecuted church aren't just about corrupt governments. They're not just about extremists of other religions. These things happen because there is an enemy that exists. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. We have an enemy who is cunning and deceiving and he wants to destroy Christians all over the world, including you and including me. The same enemy that seeks the persecution of the Christians around the world wants you and I to walk away from our faith. So why is there persecution and suffering? I think it's because it's just the fundamental nature of the world that we live in. When sin entered the world, it totally messed everything up. That moves me to my next question that I think about is, so how do I understand persecution and suffering? What, what is persecution and suffering? Because I start thinking about the plight of these people around the world, and I think, I, do I really experience persecution? You know, why them and not me? I think in light of what the Bible teaches about persecution and suffering, we need to understand, since the enemy is the origin of suffering and persecution, I think we might need to expand our understanding of persecution and suffering. 1 Peter 4, 15, we're going to get there in a minute, you have to turn there. It speaks about this idea that there is certainly a suffering that comes from our own um, poor decisions in life, our own sin, our own mistakes, the things that we do, there, that there is suffering that happens. But in verse 16 it says there is a suffering that comes from being a Christian. And I think in light of the fact that persecution is from the enemy, that you and I would do well to understand what is happening in our own lives, how we relate to the persecuted church. It's just like what I said, the same enemy that is after them is after you and I. I think persecution, certainly it's not the same. Certainly you and I don't live in a world where we fear death, where we fear people taking away our children, where we fear our wives or our husbands being imprisoned. There's certainly a level of difference. But I'm not sure it's that much different than we make it. If we understand that there's a real enemy and he wants you to give up your faith just like he wants them to give up their faith. Every day, you and I are bombarded with decisions the enemy attacks us, wanting us to walk away from our faith. On your job, you have the decision to make of whether you're going to live a life of being obedient to Christ or whether you're going to live according to this world. When you go home this afternoon 
fathers and mothers and you want to raise your children, you have a choice to raise your children according to your faith or to be attacked in a way that says, do not raise your children in that way. Raise them according to the world. Every day we're faced with an enemy who wants to deceive us, who wants us to draw, to draw away from following Christ. And in a sense, I think in a broad sense, you and I are persecuted way more than we understand. I think we have minimized sin. We've minimized the, the consequences of sin. And the devil wants you to walk away. The devil is doing everything he can, fathers, husbands, to make you give up on your wife. Students, every day the enemy is doing, he is working hard to get you to reject Christ in your schools. To live according to the standards of some of your friends. Instead of living according to the standard of his word. I hope you understand that though we don't face death, it's hard to follow Christ in this world because we have an enemy who wants to destroy us. And if we don't believe we're living in a battleground, then we maybe we're not really following Christ. Certainly there's persecution from the government, from friends and family. But I think we've got to have broadened the understanding of persecution to realize the origin of all of it is the enemy. The origin of all of it is Satan who wants to make us walk away from our faith. 1 Timothy 3.12 says, A life devoted to Christ will be persecuted. If you're not facing a reality that exists that feels an enemy who wants to make you walk away from the faith, then maybe you should check yourself and see if you're really living, if you're really giving all towards Christ. The Bible says that persecution for Christians will happen. It may not look like this. It may not look like Salavat, but it will happen to us. Flip over to Psalm 46. The next question for me that I deal with in relation to persecution and suffering is if there's an enemy that exists and he wants to destroy me, then what is God's role in suffering and persecution? Where is God in the midst of the difficulties and the trials and the persecution and suffering that happens in life. Where is God in the midst of this? And I think Psalm 46 gives us a great picture of what God is doing. Psalm 46, starting in verse 1, says, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble and its swelling, there is a 
There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. God is not absent in our lives. He is not absent in the lives of the persecuted church. God is ever-present. He is a help. He is a refuge in times of trouble. In times of persecution and suffering, we run to God because God is the one who can help us. He is a good God who does good. He is a sovereign God. The Bible teaches us that there is nothing that happens outside of His plan. I think God uses these times in our life to strengthen our faith. God is not the cause of suffering and sin, but He certainly allows them in our life so that we might be strengthened. The classic case, of course, is Job. If you remember back, I really, I think us in America can identify with Job. We ought to. Though maybe we haven't faced the extreme that he's faced Job was attacked by Satan only because he was a righteous man. Satan attacked Job simply because he wanted to live for Christ. That same enemy wants the same for you and me. And God uses this in Job to strengthen his faith. And ultimately we'll see in a minute that God God is the ultimate judge. That there is a judgment that is coming. That those who obey the gospel and live in faithfulness will be saved. And those who are not faithful will perish. God will judge the enemy. And then ultimately he makes a way through Jesus Christ. Persecution and suffering in our lives and in the lives of believers around the world ought to drive us to the cross of Christ. He is our only help. God made a way in Christ that we might walk through persecution and suffering because we have a high priest who has endured everything that we would ever endure. Jesus Christ can sympathize with you and I and the plight of those around the world because Jesus Christ was abandoned and beaten and destroyed for being the Savior of the universe. God understands. And He made a way through suffering in Jesus Christ. Flip open to 1 Peter. We're going to spend the rest of our time in 1 Peter Chapter 4. I know that that was like a glancing blow 
of trying to grasp sin and suffering and persecution around the world. Some of the questions maybe I deal with, maybe you deal with, and ultimately what I deal with is how am I supposed to respond? If I live in a world, listen, this culture every day around us is wanting us to abandon Jesus Christ. Whether overtly or covertly, we live in in a world that is against Jesus Christ. The culture that we live in every day that we have to stand firm in Christ in is against Jesus Christ. Even in Abilene, Texas. Even in the South where lots of people believe in Jesus, there is still an overbearing culture that tells us to walk away. And I'm wondering, how should I respond? And 1 Peter 4, 12-19, I think, gives us four responses in our own life to persecution and suffering. Read with me quickly, 1 Peter 4, 12-19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and it begins with us. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved or barely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. The first response to persecution is we should not be surprised. Anybody in here like surprises? You like surprise birthday parties? I, I hate surprises. <laughs> You can ask my wife, when we were dating, we almost ended it because she wanted to surprise me with a party or I think she tried to surprise me. You know when you go to Roadhouse and they make you sit on that saddle and wave the thing and they're surprising you? I hate surprises because what surprises do for me is they put me in a place that feels like I'm out of control and I really like to be controlled. I don't like unexpected things. I, I like to know what's happening and know how I can respond. And the Bible tells us don't be surprised when suffering comes your way. We've already heard before, it's coming. If you're going to follow Christ, if you're going to say, I'm going to stand for Christ in this world, suffering will come. And do not be surprised. We've already said we cannot be surprised because that's just the nature of the world that we live in. Our enemy is real. Jesus says, they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And we don't have to seek it out. I mean, I don't want persecution. Is that that okay? Certainly, the Bible tells us we want to live in peace. But if we're going to stand for Christ in this world, the battle is so strong that suffering and persecution will happen. We cannot be surprised. The second thing that we must do is rejoice. 
In Matthew 5, 12, if you remember back 14 years ago when Kevin was teaching in Matthew 5, Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Speaking to those who would be persecuted, Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad. Does that not seem odd? That a response to suffering and persecution is rejoicing. My response to persecution and suffering is to crawl in a corner and cry. Woe is me. Why me? Why is this happening to me? That's not what you see from the persecuted church. And that's not what you should see from someone who is standing firm in their faith in Jesus Christ. He says we ought to rejoice. And Jesus says in Matthew 5, Because great is your reward in heaven. If anyone ought to know and be able to tell us to rejoice, it's Jesus Christ who left heaven, who left perfection, who left the great reward to come and live a life on this distorted, twisted planet. To die for our sins, to make a way that you and I might have salvation and face the suffering and persecution in our lives. If anyone we can trust, it's Jesus Christ who says there is a great reward that awaits you. We can rejoice because there is a great reward. We can also rejoice because His glory is being revealed in us. If we'll stand firm in light of persecution and suffering, then God will be glorified. Which is number three. We ought to glorify God. He says, do not be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Other places he says, count it joy. We glorify God that He would allow us to face suffering. We glorify God because we are not the objects of the suffering. God is the object of the suffering and the persecution in our lives. The devil wants to destroy us. The enemy is after us because of the God who we glorify in our lives. If we think the enemy is attacking us just because he wants to hurt us, then we've missed it. It's not woe is me. It's look at our great God. The enemy is after God because God offers reward and glory and hope and salvation. We can glorify God because... 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says it is a light and momentary affliction. We can glorify God because we know someday it will end. Someday suffering and persecution will be over. And then the last thing is in verse 19. The last thing he says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will... There again, God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. I want you to know when you face persecution and suffering, you can trust God. 
You can trust God. You can live in obedience. He says, trust God while doing good. I think Peter's saying, look, you can trust God in the midst of difficulty and you trust Him by walking out and being faithful. If the goal of persecution is to keep us from being, to to make us be unfaithful to God, then the way we get through difficulty is to be faithful to God. We can trust God. We can be faithful in the midst of difficulty. Do not turn your back on God when difficulty and persecution comes. Allow it an opportunity to glorify God and to walk in obedience and faithfulness knowing that your reward is great in heaven. The ultimate goal of persecution is suffering. is to get you to be unfaithful. And this may be a stretch, but I really believe it to be true. I think one of the greatest things we can do for the persecuted church is not just pray for them, but is to stand faithful in the place where we are. Persecuted Christians around the world are looking for other places. They're looking for Christians who are standing faithful where they are. Even though it may not be the same, they're looking at American Christians. They're looking at Western Christians who don't face this, but face a different circumstance in their faithfulness. And they're wondering, will you be faithful? If we can be faithful in the midst of our difficulty and our suffering, then the people around the world who are facing difficulty can be faithful in theirs. And the same is true when we hear these stories. If people like this can be faithful, then you and I can be faithful. We can stand firm in our faith. There's a story of a young man named Vanya. He's a 20-year-old soldier in the Russian army. He was tortured for some time for his faith in July 16, 1972. Those persecuting him went a little too far and he died. But the day before, he wrote a letter to his brother. And this is what he wrote them. Don't tell our parents everything. Just tell them. Vanya wrote me a letter and writes that Jesus Christ is going into battle. This is a Christian battle. And he doesn't know whether he will be back. We live in a battle every day. With an enemy that is real. That wants you to give up and forsake your faith in Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 2 verse 10 says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. 